Hey there, everyone. Jeff Kasuf here with another episode of Kicking Back, a podcast brought to you by The Equalizer on the Blue Wire Podcast Network. This week's guest is Megan Burke, the executive director of the National Women's Soccer League Players Association, the PA for short. And they are in the middle of a collective bargaining agreement with the NWSL. So this is a very timely conversation. There is a lot of interesting stuff in here. If you are a bit of a nerd on the legal mind, legal end, or just interested in the sport in general, this collective bargaining negotiation is going to shape the entire future of this league. And obviously this league is one of, if not the leading leagues in the sport in women's soccer. So really interesting conversation about some of the positions the PA might take on certain topics, obviously some sensitivity to ongoing negotiations. So can't quite get into super level of detail, but I think you can glean plenty from this interview about how things are going, where the league might be going, where the players see the league going. Really interesting stuff here with Megan Burke. Please go ahead and rate, review this podcast, subscribe so you don't miss a thing. And let me just tell you on this episode right now for this limited bit of time as we release this one, if you leave us a review, send it to us on Twitter at Equalizer Soccer, and we will put you in, send us a screen grab that is, uh, we'll put you in the running for a pack of trading cards, Parkside NWSL trading cards, first of their kind, really cool stuff, very hard to find too. They've been sold out in Targets and Walmarts, just about everywhere they're sold out online, and uh, we have a a little bit of a stash that we're giving away to subscribers to EqualizerSoccer.com and to some folks reviewing our podcast here. So go ahead and review it. We'll put you in the running and you might walk away with a pack of trading cards, which is a topic at the end of this podcast about player name and likeness and where things are going in the collective bargaining agreement. Just a little tease to keep you around for the full almost hour. Looking forward to bringing this conversation. Hope you enjoy Jeff Kasuf here on another episode of Kicking Back, and I'm happy to be joined this week by Megan Burke, who is the executive director of the National Women's Soccer League Players Association, NWSL PA, and a former player. Thought it'd be fun to maybe you build out that bio for us as we uh, introduce you here, Megan. So uh, welcome to the show, first off. Thank you for having me, Jeff. I'm really glad to be here. So so what, um, you know, you're former pro player, mm-hmm. uh, a lawyer, now the uh, basically in charge of the PA in in so many mm-hmm. words. Um, what else did we we miss here? What's essential to Megan? Burke? Oh, that's good. Oh, what's essential? I love the essential <laughs> start to the the conversation. Um, no, it's it's really good to be here with you, Jeff. And thanks for it's nice to be introduced as a former player. You know, I've been a lawyer for uh, long enough now, where there aren't that many athletes uh, in courtrooms that I've been running around in, and it's nice to get back into athlete mode. Um, yeah, I, I actually I live in Asheville, North Carolina. I was um, drafted out of college. I went to St. Louis University and born and raised in St. Louis. Uh, And I moved to North Carolina because I was drafted into the WSA and never in a million years would have thought that, you know, some 18 years later, I would be calling North Carolina home. Um, But I I bounced around and, you know, chased the dream like a lot of our players in the WSL Players Association moved around quite a bit. Uh, And now have settled into Asheville where I've been for, I guess it's been... uh, yeah, more than 10 and a half years, I suppose, after I finished playing in WPS and helped form the WPS Players Union. Uh, studied labor law in law school, but being in North Carolina, there's not a whole lot of labor organizing happening here. So hadn't had a chance to get back into that world until 
Um, yeah, L. Averbush had called in 2017 and let me know that they'd organized into a labor union and needed someone to kind of work with them just in the background. And so I've been working with the Players Association since 2017. Uh, when the players first organized, we've been voluntarily recognized by the league since 2018. Um, in COVID time, it's funny, that feels like, I don't know how long ago that is. I have to really do check my math there every so often. Um, but I was named executive director and am now heading into, I guess, the third month. Um, day one on the job was uh, our first ever day of CBA negotiations. So <laughs> it's been a very exciting few months in this role. And wearing, uh, you can't see her if you're listening on a podcast platform, but wearing Asheville City swag right now yes. so uh, that's right yeah we finally beat the charlotte eagles gosh it's weird, <laughs> but we beat the eagles on saturday night in a really exciting one nil match here at home uh yeah i'm actually a minority owner in Asheville city soccer club which plays in usl and wpsl um and so i mean i i will say i guess this part of the bio you know back in uh this was 06 07 i worked on the st louis mls expansion effort for jeff cooper and kind of worked on the business side of the game. And, and then, of course, as a player, experienced that, helped organize the players' union. And then as an owner or a minority owner in, in uh, sort of pre-professional leagues, I think it gives me a certain vantage point into the challenges that our board of governors and league are navigating um, with NWSL. Perhaps that's that's really helpful in, in the role that I'm in here advocating for player uh, rights and player health and safety. Well, the, the big timely news that you just mentioned, which, you know, I want to kick us off with and, and we'll dive into some details, but ongoing collective bargaining agreement uh, negotiations and first time in NWSL history, there, there was the voluntary recognition, as you mentioned, and that sort of set the table, I think, for anybody paying any level of attention, but yeah. um, now has, you know, formally begun. Um, just recording this middle, mid-late June, uh, how would you characterize where things stand now in that negotiation process with the NWSL? Yeah, sure. So I'd say we're making progress. Um, you know, you as you point out with the voluntary recognition agreement, the central purpose of a labor union is to negotiate a CBA. So it's something that it certainly has been on my mind um, since the Players Association first formed. Uh, and a lot of work last offseason under Brooke Elby and Yael Averbush um, really went into figuring out what a, the framework of a, an ideal CBA in the Players Association view, what issues it would encompass. And so we'd given the league notice of our intent to pursue a CBA back in fall 2020. Um, and we met in March in Washington, D.C. and had a productive first couple of days where we basically presented our proposal to the league. Um, it was a comprehensive proposal. And uh, we've scheduled, we've already had a couple of sessions since um, to start working through those issues. We've got a few more uh, coming up. And what I'm really thrilled about is that we have a steady schedule of bargaining sessions set up between now and September that I think, you know, a few months from now are going to put us in a position where um, we have a little more clarity over the direction the CBA is going to go. So player rights have been a, a big topic in this league for a long time. And I think this is obviously, in general terms, something that'll be a focus of these negotiations and, and mm -hmm. you know, plenty of specifics that branch out of that. But, um, you know, it's a league that's organized in such a way that teams have traditionally have really significant power, which, um, mm -hmm. you know, I'm curious what, in your opinion, uh, that you can share, I guess, you know, mm -hmm. do you think needs to change in that balance of power where, you know, thus far players are just kind of at the will of, 
maybe not even who has a contract with them, but who has their mm-hmm. quote unquote rights or, or, you know, some of these more, I like to use the word Byzantine, uh, these complicated <laughs> situations. <laughs> yeah. Great word. Um, well, so, so first of all, I think um, to, to even back up a step or two, you know, you don't pursue a CBA because you want to codify the way things are. Um, we are looking to create a paradigm that does shift the balance of power back to where we think it belongs. Because right now, I think it's gone. When you look at discovery rules, the draft, um, you know, our minimum salary is twenty-two grand. So you look at the the issues as a whole. Um, it's gone too far in one direction. We're looking to bring it back to where we hope. Uh, the parties kind of can find some common ground. Um, you know, I think when you talk to players, they know that they're not going to retire and ride off into the sunset and never work again. All of our players, I, I just, I say this all the time, but I think it bears repeating. Our players are an incredible group of people. All of them have a life story. Um, they're accomplished. They're bright. They're running businesses, foundations, their parents, they have side jobs, you know, they're doing other things. And so very few of our players imagine that, they're going to make a ton of money um, playing soccer right now, at least. But what they do want is the dignity of being treated like a professional. Um, they want to play at the highest level they possibly can. Having chased the dream myself, you know, it's it's about knowing that you've got a short shelf life in this playing career. You know, if you're lucky, you've got maybe seven or eight years. Most of us probably three to five. You know, you see a few players retire after one or two seasons, which I hate to see. Um, and for whatever length of time they've got, they want to give it their best shot. They want to feel like they're playing at the highest level they possibly can. Um, and with that means having a little bit more agency, uh, it means a contract, meaning that it's a contract, a real contract that's enforceable on two, on both sides, not just the one-way street. Um, you know, I think it, it's going to mean that players, we use the term free agency, but I think players are interested in having uh, some of that, some, some more free agency. I think it's a great term to describe what players are after, which is, the ability to have um, some leverage and bargaining power in the employment relationship. Um, you know, in terms of what that means for players, I think it's really important to know that we have uh, a little over two dozen players on our bargaining committee, and we have had players attending every single bargaining session that we've had. We've had players get up at you know five in the morning to attend 8 a.m. meetings because uh, we have the time zone difference. Um, we've had players juggle, you know, there, you see them literally getting on the zoom from a session, they're sweaty, hot. I'm like, we please take a drink of water before we dive into this. It's okay. But that's how important this is to them, uh, how engaged our bargaining committee is. Um, and that's a message that we think is important for the owners to hear and understand that, that this is not just another meeting. This is not just another contract. Um, this is, this is about players' lives. It's about the dignity of a career and a life experience that will not be replicated. They get one shot at this and it's got to mean something. And so really that's what we're after in the CBA is to bring about uh, a standard that is, we hope, the global standard for women's professional soccer. We are not striving to be an MLS. Um, All due respect to MLS, I'm a fan, I watch games, but we're not looking to be the 12th or 13th best league in the world. Um, When you look at the history of women's soccer, We've set the standard, not the other way around. Um, you don't win four World Cups in this country by chasing what the men are doing. And I mean that, again, with, with a lot of respect and as a fan of the U.S. men and MLS. But we think it's the women who set the standard here in this country, and that's what we're looking to do at the CBA. Well, you, you mentioned uh, the term agency there. 
Um, you know, free agency, I think, is something and ties into the MLS point, which took many years. And even at that point, there were, at least at the start, very significant restrictions and, and it required some serious seniority. Um, is unrestricted free agency, is that something that you would call a goal? <laughs> I would, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, look, I think part of the reason, I, and I want to say this too, because I know for folks who are listening to this podcast, they're obviously... Uh, you know, well-informed listeners, well-informed about the game. They follow these things closely. And as a fan myself, I'm always like, but tell me more. I want, you know, give me the, give me the juice. I don't, I don't want just, you know, just want the headlines. Um, I really do feel committed to working with the league and by the league. I mean, you know, specifically we've got a commissioner in Lisa Baird. We've got general counsel, Lisa Levine, Liz Dalton, who works with player affairs. I mean, there, there are people who constitute the league. This isn't just some amorphous, uh, you know, evil empire somewhere. <laughs> That's probably not the right analogy, but it's the one that comes to mind. Um, you know, it's a really hardworking, committed group of people who've devoted their lives to growing the league and the women's game. And um, they're figuring this out with us too. You know, they have a different role to play um, in getting to a, a resolution in our CBA negotiation, but I know how hard they're working because I see it every day. Um, and I want to respect the process. You know, I want to give all of us a chance to figure out where we land on these issues. So, so yes, the players association would like to see unrestricted free agency. Um, we think that's the future of the women's game, but we also know that there's a process that the league's got to work through with the board of governors. Um, and so where we land, I don't know yet. I can't speak with any intelligence about that because we are in the middle of a process, but you know, I want people to know we're not trying to be cagey about the details. We really are just trying to work through a, a really complicated process. I want to expand a little bit on that MLS thought that you had, though, because I do think, and I've compared the leagues in the past and in writing and content, because a lot of the NWSL rulebook and guidelines, were, you know, a lot of the NWSL is is copied from the MLS, uh, from MLS, sorry, um, whether that's just the, the structure of things, um, how how you acquire players, some of those complications. So, you know, the idea I think that you said is worth repeating and maybe expanding on of not trying, mm -hmm. you know, the idea that you don't, or the players I'll say, don't want to replicate MLS is an interesting starting point because it seems like maybe on the other end, that's what so much is based off of. Um, ha have you noticed that um, tension, I guess, or, or that discrepancy? And, and how do you kind of find that middle ground because there's such different systems. One is, I guess, a closed system for lack of a better term. And then, mm -hmm. you know, the world market is open as, right. as much as it can be. Right. Yeah. I think so, you know, I'm, I'm sort of a nerd and I love talking about the history of our sport. And that's one of the things that I try to, you know, in this role is help players know their history and understand their history. So of course, Jeff, you don't need me to tell you where this is the third women's pro league. We started with WSA. It was around for three years, um, 2001 to 2003. Um, there was kind of a six-year lull, but in between there was an LLC form, WSII. Uh, I think it was Women's Soccer Initiative Incorporated that Tanya Antonucci had organized to try to rebuild because we knew that there was a market for women's pro soccer. The issue was not that there wasn't a market, that there, wasn't, that there weren't fans or corporate sponsors or interest. It was that the model didn't match you know, what the interest was, what the market was. They hadn't yet settled on the right model. And so WPS was formed. Um, WPS, of course, was again around for three years, um, 2009 to 2011. 
I, you know, someone someday will hopefully write history books and do sort of a postmortem on like what happened there. Cause I think there's some real interesting stuff there. Maybe that's your next book. Um, but you know, then we had this year kind of WPSL elite rebuilding to reboot and come back with NWSL. So shorter turnaround, but still, you know, we, we saw a business go under. And so I think what all of us are sense were at least sensitive to is the precariousness of a women's pro sports league. And so when you look at professional soccer in this country, you know, MLS isn't the only place to look. You had the NASL, um, you know, you had, I was a St. Louis steamers and St. Louis ambush fan growing up professional indoor soccer was, you know, how I got into the sport, uh, as a fan. Silva Ilyeski was one of my heroes. Um, so you look at, you know, all the different models. And I think what we've seen is that major league soccer figured something out with what they call single entity. And this idea that instead of having a franchise system where you had independent owner operators and say, you know, 10 markets or 20 markets, you bought, you know, a 10th of the business and had uh, in exchange operating rights. Well, so that's a great premise to start from if you're looking for something that's sustainable. And that's where NWSL started was this idea of uh, what they call single entity model. But inevitably, you know, as your business grows and thrives over time, as Major League Soccer has done and as NWSL has now done, we're heading, you know, we're in our ninth season here. Um, you evolve naturally, right? And so it started as sort of this single entity premise has morphed to meet the needs of the current climate. And so it's no longer what I would call, and you saw that, of course, I'm sure you'll ask me about the Moultrie case, but you saw the, the judge's opinion in that case. She kind of identified all the ways that NWSL doesn't currently operate as a single entity. Um, the league would say that in the independent owner operators are agents of this single employer. Yeah, I think it's it's messy, right? Um, because the business has grown and evolved, as has um, the league. And so, um, I think initially, yeah, MLS inspires the foundation of the model and this uh, this premise that they're working from. Um, and I think what's happened is that yeah, as they're trying to solve problems, more rules get created. Um, and so, over nine years, we now have a nine-year history. We have this mishmash of rules that have kind of been layered on top of each other. Allocation money is an example. Uh, I sort of call it monopoly money. It's like, you know, this is confusing stuff. You really do almost have to have, to have a law degree to really understand how these how these rules work. And even then, I think it still um, can be opaque. But so I think what's happened is that we now find ourselves in 2021 um, with this kind of almost Frankenstein that has borrowed from things to, to meet problems and create a system that can work, um, but I think has exceeded its capacity and limits from what was originally conceived in 2012. And so I think the CBA actually presents an opportunity, not just for us, but for the league um, and for owners to go back to the drawing board and say, what is the world? I mean, you know, well done us for, for creating this thriving business model and coming out of a pandemic stronger than we went into it. What now? And that's what the Players Association, we see our role as moving the league from talking about what's doable to doing what's possible. And this CBA create, creates that opportunity for us to imagine the possibilities and then execute them in a new paradigm. A point you made there st stuck with me because the league I think has been uh, for too long has tried to put out fires and, and those first few years, I think you can say, of course, you know, then you get into maybe certainly the past couple of years and, and you do have the pandemic in there. So to some degree, you say if that's the biggest fire, maybe, but um, th there hasn't been necessarily longer term planning, midterm planning. It's It's been a lot of reactive, reactionary stuff, as you mentioned. And 
Um, I wonder, you know, we've heard, I think Lisa Baird on this podcast six or seven months ago talked about needing to do that planning. Um, obviously, this must inherently be part of what you're discussing in these negotiations that it's not just what's good today, but what's good in 2026, right. maybe. So how far down the line are you looking when you're trying to figure that out? And, you know, I assume you're not going to tell me what terms you're aiming for in terms of years <laughs> and that, but, you know, what is that, what is that vision? Um, how far is that extending realistically at the moment? It's a great question. You know, I think um, it's the term of a contract is, is something where I think there's actually a lot of alignment. I mean, that's why it's like, we, you know, I want to pr protect the sanctity of a space where we're all brainstorming together and we don't necessarily have an answer to your question. And I think that's probably the honest answer to it is that I'm not sure yet um, because it's part of a much bigger picture question, right? Like a lot of these issues are interconnected. Um, you know, if we can reach some agreement on really substantively important issues, like for example, free agency or guaranteed contracts or minimum salaries, you know, there might be a reason for there to be a longer term um, to provide all of us some, I mean, look, a CBA is a lot of work. <laughs> you know, I, I can tell you personally, I don't want to negotiate a first ever contract this year and try to do one year and then turn around and do this again next season. You know, I, I think all of us would like some stability and, and clarity over some duration of years. Um, and, and also I think, you know, let's, let's give credit to the league for putting out the fires as you describe. I don't know that there's anyone on the planet who saw this pandemic coming. Um, I certainly have not met that person. And, you know, you've got Lisa Baird coming in as a new commissioner. And I want to say it was within 72 hours or something crazy that, you know, it, the first signs of what was to come were happening. And so uh, I am grateful to her leadership in the league for being nimble enough to put out those fires and to secure, um, you know, broadcast rights to put on a heck of a show at the Challenge Cup. And then the fall series, we were, you know, breaking records left and right on that front. And demonstrating to potential sponsors and to fans that, you know, not only are we going to be okay, you know, all, all any of us needed to do in this pandemic was survive. <laughs> I really believe that. We did more than that. We thrived. And I, that's an amazing thing. Um, but I do think that, yes, you're right, that we need to be proactive in planning. And I would say that multi-year planning of any sort is going to be progress. Um, I'd like to think the CBA is going to be longer than one or two years at a time. But multi-year planning and specifically one area where that manifests, for example, is scheduling. You know, I don't think it, I, I would not have wanted to be the person that had to put the jigsaw together this year. That was uh, scheduling an NWSL season. Um, not only did you have the COVID restrictions and literally, you know, you couldn't put enough butts in seats for games, but you also had the MLS uh, and their players association going through three CBA negotiations in a single year. Uh, and a lot of those teams playing the venues that our teams play in. So it was, I mean, the zen of chaos, I call it. Uh, my hope would be that we can we can start getting into multi-year planning this season so that we have a little bit of clarity, you know, for 2022, 2023, 2024. We're getting now, you know, post-Women's World Cup and into the Men's World Cup that we're going to host. You're starting to see where there's a need to have some clarity over what the master calendar is going to look like. So that's a good example of a topic where I think multi-year planning isn't just good for us as players. It's good for fans. It's good for businesses. And it's going to be great for the league too. And you mentioned Olivia Moultrie and I do want to talk about that because I think <laughs> I anybody, anybody listening to this is, <laughs> is probably uh, very interested in the topic itself and obviously what it might mean um, as 
a domino effect, maybe for lack of a better mm-hmm. term. But sure. the, the topic itself, you know, at, at a very basic level, yeah, the based on the PA's views of free agency, I'm you know, I know that there's probably an inherent rejection there to the discovery system and idea that mm-hmm. that uh, you know was out there. But what is the PA's position if it has one, if it has one to share on the idea of an age limit or age restriction, which is the the micro issue in this case, and I, I think we can expand on the macro issues, but. Uh. Yeah, sure. Well, let me say this. I feel like there's so much coverage and, and good coverage, I should add. Um, you know, I two of my favorite things, soccer and law, you know, intersecting <laughs> together. Uh, and I don't have to be the one standing up in the courtroom arguing it. I can just, you know, appreciate the show. Um, Olivia Moultrie is, I think there, there can be no question. She's a very impressive young woman. I think that's the place to start. Uh, she's only 15 years old. And I listened to her testimony and thought she was very poised, um, thought she did a nice job presenting herself to the court. Uh, and so I, I certainly look forward to a day whenever that day comes that we see her on the field. And, you know, I, of course, wish her nothing but raging success um, because I, there's certainly a spotlight on her. Um, and so I don't think you, with all the coverage, I think it's important to kind of start there and point that out. Uh, and I look forward to her hopefully being a member of our Players Association one day soon. Um, we, as a players association, I can't, you know, I can honestly say that of all the issues on our radar screen, and I mean this sincerely, those issues are so big and so broad that the idea of an age restriction was a tiny, didn't even register, if I'm honest. It's not even a blip for us because we've got 240 players we represent, um, international players from all around the world, a range of priorities and concerns ranging from salary to training conditions, to medical care, to you know, food quality after a match or a training uh, session. Um, you know, obviously you've got the bigger ticket like free agency and whether there's a salary cap and what it is and how all those pieces fit together. You know, an age restriction is something that I would imagine NWSL wants in, to see in a CDA. And we will go through our internal process to come to a position on it uh, when we see that proposal and what, what the league's thinking. But um, from our perspective, you know, I think it's it's part of the negotiation, uh, but it's not something that we put on the table. Um, I think there are, frankly, one of the, the limitations, I, I've been a litigator for over 10 years, and unfortunately, one of the limitations of litigation is that it's a blunt instrument. Um, you know, you, it's, you, you get arguments on one side, and you're, you know, you're going to try to deal with your weaknesses um, through framing them as positives and vice versa. And the truth is, this is complicated. You know, no two 15-year-olds are the same, much less, I, you know, I'd, I'd be hard-pressed. I hope there are other Olivia Moultries out in the world because what an impressive young woman and an awesome future NWSL would have, but it seems unlikely. Um, you know, so it's kind of a unique situation that has brought this really what I would call relatively discreet, narrow issue that isn't going to have more broader concern and kind of blown it up into, like, it's been the headline for the last several weeks um, we've officially been Switzerland in not taking a position because, you know, ju- I just see no benefit to that. I do think it, it is an issue that fits within the context of our CBA negotiation. And absolutely, I'm open-minded about what an age restriction might entail because I think the league, whether it was adequately presented by their lawyers and, and adequately litigated and put in front of the court is a different question. But as a practical matter, I think that there are some practical concerns around uh, minors being in the league because, my job as the executive director of the Players Association is to advocate for player health and safety, first and foremost, above all else, and to make sure our players are safe on the field and their basic needs are being met. 
Um, and so if we've got the possibility of 14, 15 year olds, and I would put those kids in a different category than a 16 or a 17 year old or an 18 year old, um, you know, we need to make sure their basic needs are being met. Can they get to and from practice? I know that sounds like a, a boring concern, but I'm a parent of three small kids and I am doing a head count every five minutes because I'm always afraid I'm going to leave someone behind. Uh, you know, if you can't drive, that's a practical consideration. And then of course, on the flip side of that is probably uh, there are going to be resources that are devoted to accommodating that need. And where does that fit within the broader picture of our asks around adequate medical staff, you know, food quality, training facilities, and and can the owners then, you know, absorb those costs and how many people does it affect? So that's a long-winded way of saying that we're open-minded about that age restriction and see it as being a small piece of a much larger discussion around our CBA. I think too, what's come out, maybe in the nerdier niche space here, but is the world I live in. I love it. (laughs) Same uh, for better or worse, same, but you know, it is the idea that as of now, I mean, for starters, if you're listening Moultrie at the moment of this recording, Olivia Moultrie is one preliminary injunction is able to, sign a contract if she wishes. I think the interesting thing to this is, you know, the NWSL uh, has said in a statement that they will appeal this decision and that a, a CBA is the place to decide an age restriction according to the league. And that could create its own complication. Should she sign Then a potential age restriction is in place that is above 15 and I'm not sure that might go down too much of a legal rabbit hole, but I'm sure it would be interesting for for you as well. (laughs) But um, I think the interesting macro issue here is uh, the ruling as it is, um, I don't want to butcher her name, but Judge Karen J. Immergut, I I believe Immergut, doesn't believe that the the NWSL is actually a single entity in practice as it says it is. So if that were to hold up, um, there's a lot there, but... Mm -hmm. That would mean essentially the entire basis of the NWSL's rulebook, competitions, mm-hmm. uh, format, structure, drafts, discovery process, all of these things that are ironically in place to create parity are legally considered anti-competitive uh, by mm-hmm. federal law, which I think is a bit of a mind blower to unpack and, and wildly yes. ludicrous <laughs> to begin with. But, you know, is is very serious for the NWSL potentially, and maybe that's why they're they're fighting uh, this decision so hard, but as a CBA goes, the protection for the league from that is a collective bargaining agreement. That's how many Correct. leagues are protected from this. So I'm sure you've reminded them of that. Um, <laughs> Just a few you know, times. <laughs> how, for anybody listening, I mean, how soon, if you had to, you're probably not going to want to guess, but what kind of a timeline do you think people could expect to see a potential yeah. resolution? Well, you know, it's funny because that's the that's the million dollar question. It's sort of like, you know, I've done criminal defense work for 10 years. And sometimes when you've got a, a tough case, your client says, well, so what percentage odds do I have of going to prison? And it's like, you know, I have a friend who once described uh, risk in these terms. It's like you jump out of an airplane, you know, and you have a parachute. There's a one in 10,000 chance or whatever it is your parachute doesn't open. But the reality is once you jump out of the airplane, it's 50-50 because your parachute either opens or it doesn't. <laughs> so that's a, a sort of, an, I guess, a fun little side detour to answer your question, which is we're either going to get a CBA done or we're not. Um, you know, it's kind of hard to predict the timeline. What I feel very confident in saying is that we've got a really good schedule laid out with specific dates and times from now through September that I feel, you know, it gives me confidence that we're going to continue to make steady progress, you know, each week between now and September 
Um, and we'll reevaluate in September where we're at then. I, you know, we're every side, I think all of us are committed to this being a top priority. I know that for a fact, you know, I speak with our commissioner and general counsel, counsel uh, regularly and our bargaining committee uh, regularly and they're engaged. And I think all of us would like to see the CBA be finalized by the end of the season. Um, you know, when you see how long CBAs take in other leagues, there are a few things you need to consider. One is that those are not first contracts. You know, this is a first contract. Um, there will never again be a first contract in NWSL. We're creating it. Uh, so that is going to take some time and some thought. Um, and it's part of the reason that, you know, I, I might've liked to have seen us a little further along at this point, but I think that's just partly, um, you know, needing to respect the process and give the other side a chance to digest these big issues and topics that we've put on the table that, that really do ask existential questions that require multi-year planning, which I think is a healthy part of what a CBA process is going to present the league with. Um, that's one piece of it. Um, you know, the other is that, yeah, I've, a CBA is having done litigation for 10 years. I can tell you that I cannot think of another case that I've ever been involved in where there was a magic bullet, where you could say, we might all be, have different views of this case, different views of the facts, different views of the law. There might be a few different ways this case could go, but we all agree there's one thing that would answer all the questions that are put on the table. And that's really unique about the, the Moultrie case about our CBA. And it does provide um, Sherman Act protection, antitrust protection to the league for us to negotiate the CBA. I think if the owners have not read the Moultrie opinion, I hope they're listening to your podcast and we'll go pull it right now. Hit pause, go read it, come back, because um, that opinion should make very, very clear to the league that if the age restriction is an antitrust violation, you can bet that all the rest of the rules the league has unilaterally created since this league was formed could potentially be subject to antitrust violations. You need to apply that analysis. Um, and so there is an imperative to getting a CBA done probably faster than I think anyone had thought would be um, doable when this first process first started. I think all of us are working really hard to get this done on a faster timeline. We'll keep an eye out as, as September rolls around, maybe if that's the, Thank you. <laughs> the one the one date that we have uh, things scheduled through. Uh, the big ticket items you mentioned, salaries are, are thing, probably the thing that gets a lot of attention. Uh, I would say mm-hmm. salaries and conditions, I'd maybe like to add to that. And I do want to talk about those, but I'm wondering um, in terms of hard pay, because this just happened again recently. I think it's an annual mm-hmm. event. Um, you know, I had reported the slight changes, the five to 10% increases in minimum, maximum total salary cap. And you get the casual fan, maybe not even someone following the league, but it's a tweet or a news clipping that comes across their timeline, their, their view. And it's, wow, the minimum salary, 22,000, this is outrageous. Um, Mm -hmm. I I do overall agree with that. I I think there's a little bit of lost context in that Mm -hmm. of, you know, Yes, 22, but let's say 40,000, you know, $40,000 with nothing added to it is a different situation Mm -hmm. than maybe $40,000, say, for nine months of work with housing, auto insurance covered, not justifying the low pay, but I think is worthwhile context that, you know, is not necessarily there. But um, yes, the minimum is still very low. The maximum, I think, if you're talking about a world-class player allocation money changes that we can get to, but what are which areas of 
salaries specifically do you think need the most addressing from a player perspective? Is it the bottom end specifically? Yes, it's the bottom. Um, and so, and, and I'll tell you, you know, I, I certainly am open to being corrected with better, more current data. You know, I've crunched numbers that are outdated, so you can't really, you got to take it for what it's worth. But um, this league has thrived on the backs of the lowest paid players. It is certainly our U.S. women and our international superstars and the best players in the league who um, have driven fans to games and brought people in the gates, but it's the players in the bottom end of the salary scale who've kept them there. Um, about one-third of all players in NWSL, roughly, give or take, are making close to the minimum or at 22000 a year. Um, that, of course, does not include, to your point, that housing is required to be provided, which is a really important issue. Uh, you know, Teams can provide other forms of assistance, like a childcare stipend, which is relatively modest. I know, Jeff, you've got kids. Uh, daycare is crazy expensive. Um, I feel like I probably spend more on daycare than I did my law degree. Um, and then, you know, you've got uh, auto assistance. Some players will get access to a car. Things like that certainly don't count to this minimum salary. But then you look at, you know, as a, as a whole, roughly 75% of the entire league is making, say, 31, 32 or less. So, you know, really, that's what I mean when I say that the league has made it to year nine on the backs of these players and the bottom end of the salary scale. Um, and so we really got to address that. We've, we've got to find a way that a nine-year veteran is not making what an incoming rookie is making because the minimum has just kind of steadily crept up. We got to address those systemic issues. Um, and I'll also point out, you know, this alloc it's part of one of my criticisms of allocation. You know, one of the criticisms against free agency might be controlling for costs and, and parity, right? Except <laughs> when you introduce allocation, you're spending money on acquiring player rights, whether it's through the discovery process. The Moultrie example is a great example. Seattle go or Tacoma you know, goes out and poaches your rights and gets something in exchange. You're spending money just to acquire rights. Why not be putting that money in the players' pockets so they can make a living wage? Um, that would be our argument or one of the many arguments in favor of a free agency system. Um, are you, where do you see the salary cap itself existentially falling? We've had we have leagues that don't have one. That's the world market, as we've talked about a world market. And mm -hmm. we have this allocation money. Do, do you foresee or would you want a fully open system that doesn't have a cap? I, I see as an advocate. So I take my role as an advocate very seriously. The role of an advocate is to advocate. And so I'm not interested in imposing caps and limitations um, where they're not necessary. I don't look at the NWSL's books. You know, I'm not an owner in NWSL. I have no idea what an annual operating budget looks like. So um, I'm waiting to hear from an informed data-driven perspective what, if any, salary cap would need to be imposed. So I don't really have an, uh, I'm open-minded, but I don't have a position on one, have no reason to propose one at this time. Well, that's a, a fascinating stat or, or a couple of stats that you shared just recently, otherwise with 75% of the league, even if that is outdated number, probably not terribly outdated, mm -hmm. that 75% of the league is roughly 31,000 or, or less. Um, annually. So um, allocation money, as you mentioned, has, it's been interesting, I guess, since it was introduced about a year and a half ago, because um, I, I think it was just a, a touch too late to, to finally come around in some ways. But, you know, to the points that we're discussing now, um, I, I wonder from a player perspective of the idea being this is a way to get more money in players' pockets to 
acquire and retain high level talent. I'm wondering if to you, it's been any level of disappointment in that I think the 2020 draft, which also feels like a long time ago, mm-hmm. there was some real in the moment controversy, at least over the ambiguity of it, that it was almost phrased as if this allocation money could actually be used on the front office or some other expenses. Yeah. And and that, you know, that was sort of corrected. I, I, you know, it's still, regardless, there's still mm-hmm. a mystery around allocation money to a degree. And I don't know that it's necessarily always directly in the pockets. I, th- I think that it's been a trade asset more than anything. Right. And you could argue, I guess, from a team perspective that, well, once that's acquired in a trade, okay, it's used on a player or maybe in a transfer, mm-hmm. but um, has it been a disappointment for you or, or does it need to be rethought? It definitely needs to be rethought. I, I think, first of all, I think when rules are that complicated, it makes it hard for fans to follow, you know, I mean, right. Like you're, you're a really well-informed. I think I need a game. degree in yeah. so rulemaking because <laughs> I think you, I think I'd qualify. Make you maybe. A certificate. Yeah. I think you would qualify. We can make up a test for you. Um, you know, when it comes to allocation money, the league basically functions like a bank. So, um, you know, it's a little bit different than just hard, cold cash. You do pay money in and there's all these, you know, if you're an expansion team, there's a different set of rules. And so I hesitate to even try to summarize it or explain it other than to say that it is a tradable asset and it, it's, in much the, the same way that banking regulations are complicated, uh, so are the allocation rules. I think it's great that the concept of you know going above 52.5 as a maximum salary to lure our best players, of giving teams more room to to work with, uh, was a, I, I think that was a positive thing. I'm I'm not necessarily gonna be critical of that premise, especially it was again another tool in the toolbox. It was a function of its time, and my point is just that it's time to move away from it. What allocation proves is that you really don't need these fixed rules and salary caps. Teams are ignoring the salary cap. It's, it's no, it's a paper tiger. It's not a real thing. And so, um, you know, I think in the interests of competitive equity and also um, creating a world-class environment, we should actually lean into this premise that allocation is based on, uh, but refine it to adapt to a new world. I've heard some argument, um, not from anybody, you know, in a, in a position like yourself. So I, I guess I'd wonder is, you know, now that allocation money, a new change for 2021, which uh, went kind of under the radar and, and I reported a couple months ago, maybe at this point, but um, that you can actually use allocation money to buy down a player's cap hit, but no longer has to be a max cap, a max salary player, which was how it was introduced. So um, I've seen the argument that, well, that means maybe they can actually pay more to more players by having a bunch of 30,000 cap hits using the allocation. I guess bluntly, like, are you aware of it being used in such a way or is that kind of a red herring? What I will tell you is I'm not aware of it being used in that way, which is not to say that it's not being used in that way. Does that make sense? Is that a lawyerly answer or what? Um, I don't know. <laughs> it's probably the simpler answer. Uh, I don't know what teams are doing with it. Uh, I'm not exactly clear on that. You know, that's one thing that I think um, would be of a benefit to all of us is a little more clarity over not just what the rules are, but how they're actually being applied. Um, I think, you know, for those of us who know and love NWSL, you want to know these things. Um, you know, super fans are, are in the weeds on these questions. And uh, given that I'm the executive director of the labor union that represents our players, and I can't answer that question for you, I reckon there probably aren't a lot of fans who are able to answer that question either and who would like to like, like I would. So um, yeah, I think, I think 
clarity, not just over our rules, but their application would be a, a positive thing to come out of this CBA. Clarity, you say transparency, I think has been the trigger word, but um, yes, it's, it does make yes. it tough to, to cover. And, uh, and thankfully, I guess we, we did convince the league to, at least I will say it's not always been happening or has needed reminding, but that teams need to announce that they used allocation money. They don't have to announce how much. So at least there's a way of tracking some mm-hmm. level of activity. Um, the the conditions as well, in addition to, to salaries, I'm curious, the, the yeah. racing Louisville travel fiasco that they had a few weeks ago uh, made me think of this because charter flights have been a really hot topic in MLS mm-hmm. through the years for players and specifically CBA negotiations. That's, you know, one of many things, as you've said on this, and I imagine commercial flights, you're talking about serious expenses that I'm imagining Mm -hmm. just knowing the situation are probably an immediate non-starter for owners at this point. But, you know, what are the type of non-compensation things that that need improving? What are some things you could share that are maybe high on players lists that aren't just we need to be paid more? Well, so I actually think this kind of gets to the heart of what the CBA should be about. This kind of circles back to what I I was talking about earlier about the dignity of a career and being treated like a professional and being set up for a situation you put your best performance on the field, which these are things I think we all agree on. I, you know, I don't think that's a, a controversial thing to say. And I think it's something we're all just trying to figure out together. And frankly, Look, I don't, I'm, we have not asked for a chartered flight to every single NWSL game. I, you know, I don't think that we, we want to be reasonable in terms of what um, we can create to create a world-class environment that is going to be sustainable over the long term. You know, I, I think we're well past the point where we're white knuckling NWSL's, NWSL's existence and we're well, we're well past that. And I also don't think we're talking about, you know, the ability to sustain seven or eight figure travel budgets, but what we can do is deal with the schedule. Um, schedule is issue number one, I think, uh, when you ask an answer to that question, because, you know, if you play, uh, let's say you're in, uh, and I, I don't have a schedule in front of me and I shocker don't have it memorized. So, uh, this is not an actual scenario, but it's loosely based on real life or whatever, you know, say you play in Portland on Saturday and then you're down in Orlando on Wednesday, but then you got to duck back to either Kansas city or Portland on the following Saturday or Sunday you know, yeah, that's where a charter flight is going to be the only way to make that work and have adequate rest and recovery. But guess what? If you play in Portland on Saturday and you don't play in Orlando until next Saturday or Sunday, a reasonable commercial flight is going to be fine. You know, you're not, you're not having to do that 6am Southwest, you know, layover in four different cities, or, you know, hopefully your team can travel together. Um, uh, I say that, by the way, as someone who's willing to take four Southwest flights to go to anywhere for the <laughs> Players Association. I was, was, was going to say, you got pretty close there. Portland's week two was Portland, Orlando, Insane. New Jersey, and then back yeah. home. So Yeah, I was like, I couldn't remember the fact that was New Jersey, the third. But then there's still three time zones away from home. And then, you know, right. what's the following? The thing people don't realize is like, look, these are elite world-class athletes. Um, they need to sleep. They need to get adequate nutrition. And when you play three games in seven or eight days like that, you got to turn around and play seven days after that. You're not even accounting for what the training week is going to look like leading into that. And, you know, there are a million other factors that go into it, but I think a a reasonable schedule that allows adequate rest and recovery, um, you know, having adequate nutrition. um, I got to tell you, players are so much more sophisticated and informed about nutrition now than they were when I was playing. And so, you know, those are issues that can, make a huge difference um, for what that following week looks like. 
Um, training facilities are huge. Uh, you know, we don't, I don't want to see players getting taped under a tent outside. You know, I'd like to see them have a player lounge. I'd like to see them have their own locker, you know, a place where that that's their own, that they're not, um, they can call it their space, you know, and it's, whether it's meetings, whether it's, you've got, you know, your trophies up on the wall or your, you know, your quotes and your expressions or pictures of the team, you know, you want to create a sense of home, uh, and an environment that feels like you own it. I, you know, I've trained, um, in, at Arsenal's training grounds and, you know, some other training where it's like, there's something special about walking into a, a facility. You're like, this is, this. And I almost dropped enough on your podcast, but this is my team. This is my club. You know, this is, this is who we are. This is my place. And that's what I want for every NWSL team. Um, I want to see, you know, one of the things I, I think the league is going to do this season, that's going to be a huge benefit to everyone is to just assess where we are in terms of standards, do a team by team analysis of, what is the player housing situation? What does that look like? Where's the training facility? Is the team training at the same facility every day throughout the week, every week throughout the season? Are they playing in the same game facility? You know, is it a construction zone or is it, you know, a world-class or professional class uh, stadium? I think anyone who's been to like Mercedes-Benz Stadium in Atlanta, or I haven't gotten to see the stadium in Austin, but you know what it's like to walk into a, a soccer stadium, not a baseball field that's been converted into a soccer pitch, but a true soccer stadium you know you get chills it's the place that evokes emotion um and that's something that i think nwsl is tapping into and this this i mean it's, i'm saying this in answer to your question about standards but i think it's relevant especially this is where kind of my role with Asheville city blends in a little bit which is creating a fan culture like a, a club is more than just a soccer team you know if you are a fan of the portland thorns and you're a member of the, you know, the Riveters, like you, it is more than just like going to a game. Yeah. We hope our team wins. We go home. Like this is your community. These are your people and your community needs to have a home and a sense of belonging and a place and a sense of identity. Um, and so that's what I hope for at each club. And with that comes the right training facilities, the right match facilities, uh, locker room facilities, you know, a, a place to train um, in terms of strength and conditioning Prehab and rehab are critical parts of a long playing career. Um, we need access to the hydrotherapy rooms, you know, massage, um, all the things that come with it. Those are not perks. I think sometimes when we talk about this, it feels a little bit like, are these things really important? Well, if you're the one putting your body on the line every single day and waking up uh, with pain and, you know, having to get up and do it again at a high level, those are the things that can make or break your experience and allow you to, to perform at a much higher level, which is something we all want. So yeah, those standards are actually, I think, a critical part of the conversation in a place where we have a lot of alignment with the league. Those standards, maybe we can wrap up here with, um, I think the the preamble to these current CBA negotiations that maybe should be acknowledged that hasn't been talked about too much, the U.S. Women's National Team Collective Bargaining mm -hmm. Agreement, the current one, which ends at the end of this year as well, um, I shouldn't say as well, you guys don't have one yet, but um, just <laughs> part of this equation, uh, you know, voluntarily inserted NWSL standards into that mm -hmm. as a way of uh, setting a tone for maybe for yourselves, but certainly a standard for the league and obviously the U.S. players within it. A um, couple of, of elements to this that, that I'm wondering about. Uh, you know, one, just what the collaboration is like with the USWNTPA, because almost simultaneously they are negotiating their own collective bargaining agreement. I'm sure there's plenty of overlap, but um, as part of that, you know, we're seeing, uh, I think we're in a world where 
it seems like everybody's planning for U.S. players to no longer be Federation players and be, we're already seeing a few of them on standard standard contracts, which I'm assuming, I think I'm correct in that they then fall under your mm-hmm. purview, which they did not correct. previously. The Federation players uh, fell under U.S. Women's National Team Players Association. They still do as internationals. Right. But, um, right. so, so what's the collaboration like there? And uh, just curious, kind of, you know, how are you factoring in these U.S. players um, who I guess, you know, admittedly have a different level of standard maybe just from mm-hmm. what they've experienced already into negotiations where that's a bit of a spectrum from that 22,000 per year player to a U.S. player who, you know, rightfully has experienced the some of the charter flights, these other perks that mm-hmm. they should be, you know, so how does that factor and what's the collaboration like? Yeah, well, in my mind, I'll say that um, there there's a distinction in name only. Uh, it's certainly complicated that there are two labor unions that represent players in the NWSL, but we do represent U.S. Women's National Team players. Specifically, I you know I didn't get their permission to to shout them out, but you know Lindsey Horan and Crystal Dunn signed to checkoffs. They're active members of our players' association, and proudly so. Um, we've got U.S. Women's National Team players who. Um, are not under standard player agreements, but signed dues checkoffs anyway, because they're like, we, you know, we're in. I mean, I, I think there's um, close alignment. And I, I see the U.S. women as having um, paved the way, you know, that they've, they've blazed the trail that we're on. And what I mean is specifically what I said earlier, that we are striving to set the global standard. Uh, the women have always done that in this country. We're not looking to be like the men. We're not looking to be like MLS. Um, that's not our way in our the, the proud history of our game is constantly pushing the envelope uh and that comes from the u.s women and i think nwsl players association is going to be right there with them in lockstep um yeah i think we are imagining a world where there's no longer a u.s soccer allocation system by the way couldn't we have named it something different because how confusing is it that you've got u.s soccer allocation allocation money all that stuff no, i refuse to um, acknowledge it's federation players that's federation you, players I was allocation money caught that. yes <laughs> federation players there we go um yeah i mean i think we we do need a plan for that world uh, i certainly am i'm imagining it i don't know when it's going to be i think it's actually advantageous that they're going through a cba negotiation at the same t- same time um you know there are there are sisters <laughs> and we're kind of in this journey together and i, I consider becca rue um, a colleague and a, a you know friend and someone who whose views and perspective I trust. She's been in the trenches on this for a few years now, and so there's a lot to learn from her as well as our brothers in Major League Soccer Players Association and Bob Foose, uh, who's been a tremendous source of support. You know, NFL Players Association has been just awesome. Um, they provide a lot of guidance and perspective to us as well. So um, I, there's no daylight, and I think it's actually. I don't know what's happening in like the boardroom at U.S. Soccer or NWSL, but I have to imagine that it's of a benefit to all of us to be thinking about um, the paradigm that we're all in. And I keep using that word and it sounds cheesy, but I truly mean it because it kind of sets the framework for what comes next. Um, And I think it's of a benefit to all of us be going through that exercise at the same time because we will all be living in this new world come 2022. Well, I want to end it maybe on a fun one. And I do want to make sure that we say, um, you know, people can directly support the PA. I know a lot of people listening yes, are player uh, player centric. And that's maybe where my, my last question goes to. But uh-huh. uh, nwslplayers.com is the site and you can hit a donate button. And Thank you. Uh, all of that goes directly to player 
initiatives like this, I guess, is that the way yes, to put it? Yes, it's going for fighting for playwrights and okay. protecting the health and safety of NWSL players. Um, so, so that's nwslplayers.com. And you got I'm it. wondering, um, it is a player-centric sport, I even want to say, not just league, that uh, mm-hmm. we're seeing this with different studies that fans are fans of players, not necessarily teams even. And that has a certain commercial value, which the U.S. women have tapped into or mm-hmm. uh, extracted from U.S. soccer to bring value to. Um, the only thing I've seen so far, I don't want to say the only thing, but the one thing that's I'm sitting mm-hmm. looking off camera here, the trading cards that have both PAs awesome? on the back. Very cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. Wondering maybe if there's something interesting or fun that or it's just, I assume, maybe part of this negotiation that there are some stars in this league that uh, have commercial value that maybe mm-hmm. you all want um, control of or players want control of their own name and likeness. Yes. yes all that look i think um you know typically uh, a group licensing program is how players associations in sports across the country and elsewhere around the world have sustained themselves it's you know how they've been able to continue investing into more initiatives to protect player health and safety cba negotiations and so we that is something we are very keen on and and working very diligently on setting up um, thankfully, you know, one of the advantages of where I sit is that I don't have to reinvent the wheel. You know, the Bob Fooses, Becca Roos, Dee Marie Smiths of the world have done this before. And so we can learn from them, um, not necessarily replicate it because I think they would tell you the things they do differently or better, but, um, we do look to do that. And, and I got to say Parkside Collectibles just really crushed this. I mean, I've got my cards. I was so excited. I, I collected baseball cards as a kid and, um, I, I gotta tell you, like, you know, you, you turn 40, you get a little cynical after practicing law for so long. And I felt like a kid all over again when I got those cards in my hands. I was like, oh my God, it's like Christmas, you know. Um, I had one of my favorite players, Jessica McDonald, uh, and Jennifer Cujo were at the top of the deck. I about passed out, you know. Um, so it's I think that's a sign of what's to come. And I think what these guys at Parkside Collectibles have done is they've shown that all the same business principles apply when we're talking about NWSL as any other professional sport. There is a real market and fan interest for it. And we are really excited as a players association to get that up the ground and off and running. We'll, we'll keep an eye out for more NWSL swag, um, maybe yes. player specific <laughs> stuff soon. So uh, plenty to unpack. I'm sure many of updates to come as we uh, keep tabs on the collective bargaining negotiations between NWSLPA and the NWSL for, uh, I guess, hopefully a first collective bargaining agreement sometime in the near future. Megan Burke, Executive Director of the NWSLPA, thanks for joining me on Kicking Back. Thank you so much for having me, Jeff. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to Kicking Back, a podcast brought to you by The Equalizer and now with Blue Wire Podcasts. If you missed any of our great interviews from the past or you don't want to miss anything going forward, and I promise you that you don't, please subscribe on any platform you're listening. Please go ahead and rate and review our podcast. It really does help with visibility. That's that for this episode. We'll be back soon with another great guest from the world of women's soccer.